Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? He's trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. Uh, you could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good evening, good night, whatever time of the day it is you're listening entrepreneurship and leadership channel listeners on the New Books Network. Today we've got a very special guest, Vasco Pedro, and I'm recording this together with my business partner and friend, Kimon Fontakidis. Uh, Vasco, how are you doing today? Hi, Richard. I'm great. Uh, Kimon, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. No, uh, no, it's a pleasure. Now, Vasco is the CEO of Unbabble, but rather than me try to introduce him which I, I usually mess up my introductions. Vasco, why don't you introduce yourself in a, a few seconds in the way you do if you meet someone at a business event or a party? Uh, sure, I'll give my my best shot. Uh, it's been a while with the pandemic actually introducing myself in a party, but uh, you know, I'm Vasco, I'm co-founder and CEO of Babel. Um, and Babel, what we do is we, we are building the world's translation layer uh, and we're doing that by combining uh, artificial intelligence and human translation. And so the mission of the company is how do we enable every business and eventually every human to communicate in every language? Something you guys are fairly familiar with. Yeah, it's true. I mean, as uh, as you alluded to, I I founded a translation company, but uh, what you guys are doing is completely different. But and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that. But maybe you can sort of just go like we're super interested here in trying to understand like how did you end up. Um, founding this company so like maybe just can you start just your story like like when um well i guess first of all you're portuguese so you 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 and you, but you you speak great english so i'm not sure you you grew up in portugal and then ended up but just tell us this, like maybe just the story yeah sure so um i i think languages have been in my dna for since i can remember my my mom now retired was a professor of uh, english linguistics at the university of lisbon and so english was always a part of the house and and language and the idea of language and intelligence and cognition was something that early on really uh, got me interested and curious. And I did my undergrad at the University of Lisbon. And at the time, there was this new um, new undergrad degree, which was a major in artificial intelligence with a minor in computational linguistics. And you know, you did the major in the School of Science, uh, sorry, the AI part in the School of Science and the uh, computational linguistics part in the School of Humanities. And it was like two very different uh, atmospheres, um, but but for me it was always about AI, right? So the, the this understanding that language is probably the most obvious expression of our intelligence, and that and I see that throughout my entire life of how much uh, our ability to communicate and to be proficient in a language dictates the someone else's perception of our intelligence. You know, there's a, there's a famous uh, sentence in I don't know if you guys see uh, Modern Family, but uh, Gloria, right? She's uh, she's not uh, originally from the U.S., and she sometimes says, "You don't know how smart I, you know, I sound in Spanish." And, it, and, and people that use English as a second language a lot of times feel that way, right? Your ability to express things. And so, um, you know, language is always important to me. And then I did uh, my master's and PhD at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Uh, so I lived in the U.S. for about ten years, and then uh, that's when I started my first uh, startup, actually. Uh, as some PhD students do, I thought I could uh, commercialize the stuff I was researching for my thesis. 
which, you know, in hindsight, wasn't such a bad idea. I've just, I was just doing a ton of mistakes as, as a first time entrepreneur and then uh, moved back to Portugal, um, uh, became a researcher at the university while I was uh, continuing to develop uh, different startups. And then eventually in 2013, started in Babel uh, along with my co-founders. It's very interesting. So something we've got in common, at least you and I have in common, we, we come from like academic families and went into business. And so if you go back a bit earlier, obviously you did a PhD, you were like on a kind of academic track. So was it a surprise for your parents that you're, you didn't mention your father, but for your mum mom and dad or your mum that you went into business or did they have any kind of expectation that they're really they're, they're still hoping for the moment you finally succeed when you become a pro professor? No, not in my case. Uh, I, I, I totally get that, right? But uh, I think it was, even my advisors at the university would be, you know, we're not surprised that I didn't go into academia. I think uh, in hindsight, uh, there's, I, I from very early on, I, I could tell that I wasn't the kind of academic PhD. So, you know, and, and I used to have uh, office mates and I remember very small things like when you're writing a paper, you know, like the I'm the kind of person that writes the paper and I, what I like is the work that leads to the paper is actually solving the problem and building the thing. Uh, I, I've always been a builder at heart, but then you look at someone that is going to do really well in an academic uh, career and they really thrive on the, on the message, you know, on going over the sentence and the writing and the, and, and being really able to communicate clearly and concisely uh, and, and the small difference, but you can see where their heart is at and what they're going to focus on. And for me, it was really the, building part. It was, I liked the idea of starting with a blank page and having an idea and making it happen. Um, and when I went to uh, the US, uh, I the thought I was going to do a master's and then, you know, go back to work. And then that kind of, you know, the two years turned into 10 years and kids and this whole like, in you know, life, life happened. <laughs> I would say. But, and that's, that's very interesting. What I was, maybe I didn't ask the question the right way, but what I was trying to get at was what sort of family pressures or expectations you grew up with, maybe a bit, bit younger. Did, did you, were you, did you have, because academia and business are quite, there is an overlap, but they're quite different worlds as you alluded to. So what did your parents want you to be? Were you, because like not all academics want their children to go into business. Yeah, you know, I, I, um, so my, my parents got divorced when I was uh, six. And so I had a, a relationship with my dad, but it wasn't very close. I, I didn't feel like there was a lot of influence uh, from him in terms of career. Um, my mom was was very, very bright. She was, at the time she did her PhD, she was the youngest PhD in Portugal, and she was very involved post-revolution in Portugal. She was very active. Uh, and, but they also grew up, you know, she was in, she studied at Sorbonne in Paris. She was there in 68. So they're like part of this generation of kind of, you know, freedom and just be happy. And, you know, uh, coming out of a, of a dictatorship in Portugal where there was much more mandated. And so they were, they were very much on the, Hey, you have the opportunity to do whatever you want. Right. And so the, I think the pressure was more on whatever you do, do it well. Right. So my mom was more of the, Hey, uh, I expect you if you're, you know, in Portugal, the, the grade system for uh, during some of the years is like zero to 20, right? If I had a 19, my mom would be like, why didn't you get the 20? You know, like there was kind of pressure of expectation of, hey, you, you're, you know, you're, you can do better than that, right? And I think that stayed with me. Uh, and, and both, to be honest, it's good and bad, right? So there's this expectation of, of excellence also creates a lot of pressure. And sometimes it drives you to achieve, achieve that excellence, but sometimes it also creates this constant unsatisfaction, you know, of, 
And, and I see that even today and in Babel, like I, I used to say, you know, we, we're, we have, we throw amazing parties and we're really good at like doing things other than work besides the work. But somehow, you know, people always expected that that was supposed to be a celebration of an achievement. And I, what I always felt is actually really bad at celebrating achievements because as soon as we achieve something, I'm like, okay, one, we could have done it better. And two, what's the next thing, you know? But, and so at some point we actually had to very actively decouple it in our culture and say, look, we're really bad at celebrating things, but really great at partying. And those two things are not necessarily correlated. We just, you know, we're hard workers that like to have fun. We don't have fun because we achieve something. We have fun because that's an important bit, but we also are constantly unsatisfied by what we've done and how much we could have done. And I think- yeah, I mean, then why reserve culture, partying? Yeah. Why reserve the partying for just only when you have those achievements? I mean, when you can have it all the time, right, Vasco? I mean, that... <laughs> that's true. You know, that's the startup life, man. <laughs> so uh, let's just, because I'm actually curious also, like Richard and I always dig in. So did you play sports growing up? Yeah. Yeah. So. I, uh, at the age of 10, I went to a military school, a boarding military school in, in Portugal for about five years, so 10 to 15. Um, and, and again, good things and bad things about it, but the, the, the bad things, uh, you know, the good things were lots of sports, right? So very early on, we you had usually three or four hours of physical activity a day, either specific sports or military-related stuff or and so that that became part of the DNA. And so I've I've always been at ease doing different things. I've I've always felt that I'm not. Uh, there's very few things that I passionately love enough that I really want to become an expert. But there's a lot of things that I want to try and, and experiment with and give it a go, right? And so all sorts of different sports. I've uh, you know I think the only sport I've never liked is handball for some reason. It's just but other than that, I used to. At the university, for example, when I was doing my PhD, I used to, I remember that there was uh, a couple of semesters that I was doing seven or eight intramurals a semester, uh, you know, with uh, volleyball and floor hockey and soccer and tennis and basketball. And just, I like to be involved in activities. How important was winning to you? Uh, it's important. So I, it's, um, and I, when I'm playing something, I am very competitive. Right, like so. When I'm playing something, I'm playing to win, and I will give it all my energy to win. I think it's important to know how to win and how to lose. You know, I think both of them teach you. And so, fight till the last second, and you know, don't do something that is not for winning. But then, if you didn't win, then take your defeat, learn from it, and get better. You know. Uh, yeah, we played that awesome. Uh, we played that awesome when I came and visited you in Portugal that time. We played that. What was the name of that game? That is a really good game. Uh, what was it called? Paddle, paddle. Oh, paddle. Yeah. Paddle. Yeah, uh, like tennis, but shorter yeah. fields. Uh, yeah. yeah. Check it out if anybody's interested in. in, in yeah, it's it's it started really in South America, so it's very big in Argentina, and then migrated to Spain, and then a few years back started making it to Portugal, and it's like growing like wildfire here. It's a good combo so, because it's kind of social and easy to learn. Yeah. And, yeah. But it's tech. It's it's got a little bit of Richard. You'd like it, Richard. Play squash, but. There's a little bit of squash in there as well, but you can use the walls and stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, um, it's it's like so a combination of tennis and squash. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll I'll definitely look into it. And and you you mentioned children. Are your children old enough to play games with you, either board games or physical sports? Yes, both. So I have four daughters: um, 17, 15, 12, and eight. Uh, and um, and so they have the 
different ages, you know, they, they like doing a lot of different activities. Uh, there's enough of them we can play a full like board game, you know, six people, which and is great. You, and, uh, and do you let them win ever, or do you always play never. to win? Never. <laughs> I always play the wins. No, the, the competitiveness was, uh, that was clear. I wanted to jump back onto the other thing, though. What you have that's interesting is that 10 to 15 are quite formative years to be in the military. Now, I don't know what that looked like, but that's kind of like, how did how did you end up, or I, I mean, I don't want to ask any personal questions. I'm not sure. Did you do anything like, you know, you, did you do anything wrong that you got, you got sent to some military school for five years or like... And what kind of an impact did that have on you? Because that is yeah, I think I think what I did of... wrong is I was reading the Enid Blyton the Five. I think that was a really bad mistake. And when my mom suggested, I think my mom at the time was concerned that you know, like my parents being divorced and kind of that, and, and I she wanted to make sure I had structure. And, and she suggested it, and, and I thought boarding school. At the time, I was reading, you know, the Five, and I thought, oh, all this adventure is going to be great. Like you know, it's going to be magical. Fortunately, the Harry Potter wasn't around at the time. Otherwise, I'd be like, yes, you know, I'm going to be Gryffindor. But, uh, but you know, as soon as I got there, they too are like, this is a really big mistake. This is not at all like the books. Mom, I don't think I would be here, but it was too late. She's like, yeah, well, no, you got to, you know, suck it up for a few years. Did you ever get into trouble? I mean, being bad in a military school can be a bit different from, oh, sorry, being bad is being bad, but the consequences of breaking the rules in a military environment can be quite dramatic. Compared yeah, to I mean, the, for for a ten year old, like there's a there's a side of it that feels more like a prison than a school. Like it really does. It, it you know, like it's a tiny prison, right? Even has and it's much less now. I mean, this was a long time ago, but it, it you know, Lord of the Fly kind of feeling. You know, there's once like adults are only present at class time and few moments, but the ruling class is the older students. And so it's like a little society onto itself. And yeah, it's so, and you're confined into a space, right? And you're, you have to do what older kids tell you. And, you know, it's very physical. I remember that this is nowadays would be so impossible. There was this thing, this event that would happen once a year. And it was uh, like a battle royale type of thing, right? And you'd get ready for it for weeks, like creating your, crafting your weapons made out of this, you know, the sheets that you put soap and you let it harden and you twist, like until you got this thing that was so hard, it would like break a brick, you know, like on it, like really. And then you'd have first and second years were the prize, so they weren't involved. And then you'd have seven, eight, nine, and 10th grades against 11 and 12th grades in an open field, have at it, you know, like lots of people to the hospital, blood, like the whole thing, you know, and I'm like, this sounds insane nowadays. But the idea was also that uh, there were, you know, you had a strength in numbers and you could get revenge on older kids, you know, like you'd gang up. But it was crazy. It was like three minute um, rounds on just have at it. It was crazy. And curiously, though, I now use a, a, a much, 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 much milder version of that at Babel in our offsites uh, because there was something that I wanted to recreate, which is the catharsis of you know, a lot of times when you have a game, you have a goal, right? Like you have to score, but in something like that, there is no goal. There is no, it's just, you just explode, right? And there's something cathartic about that. And so what we did was instead of that was using colors, right? So watercolors or powder, but have everybody in the company versus the management. Um, three minutes, like three one minute rounds, just have at it, complete explosion. And it's interesting, the dynamics, right? Because you do have people ganging up and like all of those dynamics, but at the end, people feel a huge release right, without any violence. So obviously, 
that makes it. I have to congratulate Vasco. I love first time in my life experiences, and I've never heard of a company where the CEO CEO organizes an environment where the entire company can gang up and physically attack the management, even in a soft way. That's quite remarkable. It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it works. You know, like it. People really get enthusiastic about it, right? They get into it, and there's something primal about, you know. And and you even do like you feel it. I think people are doing like chants and being like, you know. This getting this motion of like we're attacking and it's. Uh, Do you have any sense of like um, some of the managers that might be less popular or any like? <laughs> Like, do you get any, any <laughs> conclusions from yeah, HR is watching in the background, taking notes? Yeah, and it's not mandatory, obviously, right? If you don't feel comfortable, you don't have to participate uh, at all. But but the vast vast majority of people did do participate, and um, and and they feel that there's a certain also humility of as a manager to be like because obviously if it's like you know. Uh, employees versus managers is like a 10 to one, right? Or eight to one. So it's like a very big different number. So you have this group of like 30 people versus 150, right? And it's, and it's clear you're going to be overwhelmed. There's nothing you can do, right? So <laughs> it's also an interesting dynamic as a manager to be in this position where like you're giving yourself up to that situation. Uh, it's it's Helpless, an dude. interesting social social experiment. So I want to go back to the, let's get back into this. So basically, yeah, we got some of the, but there's clearly some discipline. I mean, I, I'm sure there's some discipline. There must be some of that military school stuff stayed with you in going into, you said you'd taken some of this in terms of this free for all. Also, there may be some discipline. I'm not sure. In terms of yeah, personal so self-discipline, I mean. Uh, I, I for... think I feel very comfortable <clears throat> in structured environments, uh, but I have a very healthy uh, disrespect for authority. And so it's this duality of, I, you know, I, I, I work well within organized groups and certain military discipline, it's fine, but I also love chaos. And so this ability to, I think it's always been quite honestly, one of my strengths is the ability to adapt to different environments and to operate within different realities and feel at ease. Um, so I want to, I want to ask about sort of bringing it into the business because you sort of just touched briefly upon it, but it sounds like you tried or were involved in many, I mean, you said, you mentioned one at, um, uh, when you were in the U S I think, but even it sounds like when you went back to Portugal, um, you were, can you tell us a bit about your startup or like your other, like your previous, uh, I, I assume failed, um, uh, business endeavors. Cause I think that you learn, we learn a lot from that. Uh, like what did you try to do before and, and, and what did you learn from it? So they were all, um, different ideas of applying AI to different things. So that's been kind of the, the recurring topic. I think uh, the first one, the, the idea was to do uh, um, uh, targeted advertising for user-generated content. So the, the goal was, this was at a time where we didn't have a lot of, like deep learning was around. So you didn't have a lot of image analysis and you, you inevitably in places like YouTube, you'd have ads that were randomly served into videos or images. and the stuff that I did in my thesis was this um, um, semantic disambiguation of, of tags uh, based on, on ontologies. And so uh, it was federated ontology search. And the idea was, okay, so if you take tags, let's say tags that are around an image, right? And if you see two tags like tiger golf, you know you're talking about tiger woods, right? But if you had tiger beetle, you're talking about animals. But if you're talking about, if you had golf beetle, you're talking about cars, right? And we and we humans do this seamlessly, right? We immediately disambiguate. And what I had created was a way to try to replicate this. And so I said, great, but how about if we apply this so that we can do uh, almost real time, a, a better targeting system for ads on video. 
which, you know, I think the idea sounds good and I think it, it has, has legs. The challenge with everything else, right? As with a lot of startups was we raised money, uh, we built a team. I was solo founder at the time. Um, and I, I did a lot of the mistakes, you know, of, of uh, pivoting too early, of not sticking with it, of not having a good business model, of the, you know, a lot of the basic stuff that people uh, run into issues. And then that, um, so the second one was Flash Group. Uh, there I wasn't founder CEO, I was one, kind of one of the technical founders. And there, I think it was lack of a CEO. I think that was a big issue. Like uh, the idea there was, um, uh, so let's say you and I are reading uh, articles on the same soccer game, but in different newspapers. A lot of these small publications don't have enough readership to have a good community and discussion of forums. So the idea was, well, how can we automatically figure out that these articles are actually about the same topic and then create instantaneous groups that people can talk about that topic, right? Uh, and uh, there, I think technically was really developed. The team was super strong, but we never, uh, so this was with Carlos Gestrin, which then uh, I think he now leads AI at Apple and he went to uh, found Datum, who was acquired by Apple. Um, but at the time was, we were a bit all over the place and we were tail spinning and not clear direction and ended up, we didn't have healthy respect for sales. So we were like just techies doing tech stuff. Uh, and so that ended up not doing so well. And then after that, um, was design and this idea was well can we actually uh, do an evolution of sentiment analysis and do prediction on uh, intangibles uh, and specifically the idea was uh, based on the problem of designers where uh, they're a bit like software developers in the day where you know b before you had to create a, some software and put it in a cd and then actually find shelf space in some vendor to put the cd and that's when you find out if your software is successful or not right and a lot of there wasn't that many software houses. And now with the app store, anybody can develop software, right? But designers are still in that stage where they go in and they design a collection and invest in creating it. And then they have to convince someone to give them shelf space. And then it's all consignment. And then they find out if it was successful or not. And most of them fail, 90% of them fail. And so the idea was, well, can we create an, uh, equivalent an app store for designers where through recommendations, but then you have to kind of figure out a way to, to how do you recommend on taste, right? On on, on fashion and taste. Um, and there, um, uh, I was a technical co-founder. I think part of the issue was, uh, with a Chinese object syndrome, you know, every time, every month there was, no, 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 we're gonna do this other thing that is bigger. And, and we never gave it enough time to really solidify and, and to build something and put it in the market and really try to find product market fit. Uh, ultimately, I think a lot of these things are about team dynamics, right? It was, instead of a really cohesive and strong founding team, you had personalities that never quite meshed fully and had different ideas and have different goals for the business and, and, you know, different egos. And, and I think that ends up being a big uh, issue, which was why within Babel, I think that was one of my primary concerns. Well, yeah. You had so much though. I didn't realize this about you. Um, and this is well, you know, you know, one of the lessons for sure, but I mean, you definitely had a lot of experience before going into Babel, basically. I mean, yeah. you came in came into Embabble with a lot of experience, actually. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in the case of Embabble, so the uh, four of the five founders of Embabble, we were working together in design, right? So, and Joao and I had been working together in Flash Group and design. So these were people that I had been in the trenches with, and I knew that we meshed from a team dynamics, both in complementarity of, of uh, skills, but also on the ability to withstand hardship and and to and, and to rely on each other right to from an emotional and and um, um, 
and and um, oh, I'm missing the word right now, but we mesh really well, right? And so, uh, for example, the whole surfing thing with Embabble, so with Embabble, surfing is a bit part of our DNA and fortunately things are reopening now. So starting Thursday, we go back to surfing, meaning every Thursday, 7 a.m., uh, you know, there's a bus. Well, right now we still can't do the bus because of COVID, but you can go to the beach and there's instructors and boards and you have a lesson. And it's and this has been because we we were surfing before in Babel, the, the four of us together. And and it was most we suck at surfing. We, we still do. We're, we're really not good. But it was really about this idea of how do we find activities that help us pay off this emotional debt between founders? And, you know, as you accumulate pressures during the week and the stuff you're doing, how do you create this moment outside of work that enable you to reconnect, right? To do something that enables you to have those conversations about small things so that when big things come, you're not actually, you know, hashing out everything else, but you actually focus on the actual issue trying to solve. And that made a difference. And so we kind of kept doing it. Yeah, and I, I want to jump onto the word hardship. Uh, you mentioned hardships and one of the things we want to do is make this podcast real, not sort of idealize the idea that it's this, because there's a sort of media image of the entrepreneur and it's it's just wonderful and someone raises money and goes public or sells for a billion dollars a very short time afterwards. And the reality is it is it is quite a tough, can be extremely tough. What sort of things for you personally, given your character, were the things you found hardest, not necessarily in Unbabble, but it could include Unbabble. You know, if you sort of think of the things that are, that are worst as an entrepreneur, what gives you the most stress, the most hardship for you as Vasco? Um, so th that's a really good point. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, in Babel, for example, when we are, you know, the IPO super successful, it's going to be one of those overnight successes, eight years in the making or 10 years of in course. the making, right? And, <laughs> right? and people are going to be like, oh, they knew it all along, right? And it's it's really not true, right? I mean, sure. to give you a sense, when we started in Babel, the actual moment that we said, let's do this. So we were doing design and we ran out of money. And we, uh, the, the CEO at the time told us that we ran out of money at the end of the month, kind of like, hey guys, by the way, this month, we, we ran out of money 30 days ago. I just didn't tell you. And so, sorry, right? And, so and thanks for working for another 30 days. <laughs> right. And, uh, and which wasn't great, right? And it reflects the lack of, Trust that needed to exist between co-founders for that not to happen, right? Uh, and we, and I knew at the time that, you know, we had been thinking about ideas, right? And I knew at the time that if we didn't do something together, everybody was going to find a job and like a month from now or two months from now, like it would have been, we had missed the timing, right? And so we decided, let's do this now, right? Let's sit together and let's do this now. And we actually went out surfing for a weekend and we, everybody got their little notebook and wrote ideas. And that, that was officially when Embabble was born. But uh, this was, so my fourth daughter was four months. Uh, my wife at the time was focused on the kids and not working. Um, uh, my co-founder, João, like his wife was pregnant. Um, in my case, I, you know, I started putting, like we didn't have money, right? And he said, look, let, let's, first there was some things we wanted to do and prove out the concept. And we were gonna start fundraising in a couple of months. And between one thing and the other, the first six months, you know, nobody got paid. Uh, you see your bank account dwindling. Uh, you're getting to the point where you're thinking like, I'm not going to be able to pay rent next month, right? With four kids. And so there's, you need to be able to risk that, right? And a lot of times people say, well, how could you do it? And I always feel divided because there is such a thing as a reality distortion field, right? Something inside you that's like, you know what? It's going to be okay somehow, right? And and a lot of times it isn't, right? And 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 so if you 
get too stressed about those things, it's going to be hard, but they're real. They're there, right? And they're in front of you. Um, or things like, you know, we got into Y Combinator, which was great, but the hardship was you needed to go there for three months, you know, and leave the kids. And my co-founder, for example, his kid was like two months old and you got to go, right? You got to be able to prioritize certain, certain things at a certain time. Um, the first three years of Babel, it's mostly, you know, traveling a lot in the cheapest, you know, dungeest hotels and planes you can find, saving, scraping every time, trying to, you know, always making the buck stretch. Uh, it, it, you know, like after YC, for example, I, I remember Series A. So we, <laughs> our Series A was very interesting. We, um, we started out, uh, we thought we were doing great. And, and in hindsight, we weren't doing that great. So we had, I think at the time, maybe a million ARR, but we had like 30% margin, which for, you know, SaaS startup, like that's not where you want to be. Uh, and I sent this email to, um, to y, YC and say, hey, we're, you know, Sam Altman is like, hey, we're thinking of doing RA. And he, you know, he, he tells the YC investors. And literally three minutes later, Mark Andreessen writes an email. I want to see these guys here. And we're thinking like, holy shit, this is awesome. And we thought we have time to prepare. We don't. It's three days later. We're, you know, in, in front of Mark Andreessen. We're like super excited. And we thought, this is great. Like, we're going to close our A. It's going to be like easy, right? And then it didn't. And then the next 50 meetings also didn't. And at that time, you know, the money's starting to running out. You're thinking, holy shit, uh, what are we going to do, right? And halfway through it, I look at uh, our, our customers and I realize that if we took customer service only, we would be making more money than everything else. So I fire 70% of our customers. So it goes from you know, million ARR to 200K ARR, but with much better margins. And we, in the last meeting of the C, uh, of, that we had booked for the Series A, which was notion to say, hey guys, look, you probably don't want to talk to us because we literally just fired 70% of our customers. And somehow, like, you know, like all of this is like this huge roller coaster, which happens to be fairly typical in a startup life, right? So this is, it's not like this is unique. I think it's, it's that amplitude of, um, of, uh, of emotions that makes it, uh, that makes it hard. I think that's one thing. And the other is, you know, like the, uh, in, in terms of what keeps me awake, I think those things are hardships and they suck. And, you know, as, as things get better, your quality of life gets better. And certainly there's an impact there. But the thing that stresses me more, it's still, if there's fundamental aspects in the team dynamics that aren't, that I feel that they're not right. I, I've seen that so many times play out as cancers that grow that those are things that I'm like, I can't rest until I feel that that's been fixed. Yeah, and I think for anyone who's not at Vasco's stage in their entrepreneurial journey, that kind of, that balance between what you call the reality distortion field, just like, you know, blind optimism or faith and the reality that, you know, there's real stress there. I'd always imagined that as a YC company, you you had like, a, and this is my mistake, my ignorance, that somehow you were, you know, had the sort of the golden boy, cushy, easy time right from the word go. And you obviously didn't. So you've been through really tough times. Uh, I know you're, you're much better funded now, obviously, but back then you were really, really struggling. But I wanted to jump, yeah. back, a, jump back a moment to 
where your entrepreneurship comes from. You said you like building things, but when you were a teenager, did you know what you wanted to be? Did you know you wanted to be a business person? Was that, when was the first moment you, you actually made a profit selling something? Did, was, uh, did you have jobs as a teenager or were you, did you, did you have plenty of money as well? Were you well off as a, a family? Are professors in, professors in Portugal quite well paid, so you grew up with money or did you, was it more like you were quite hungry to have a bit of the material stuff? Um, so, um, we weren't well off. I think, um, uh, my mom as a, uh, university professor, I would say middle class, you know, like middle, not, not even really upper middle class, but like somewhere between middle and upper middle, you know, like meaning I, I never went hungry. I had access to good experience. Like I traveled, uh, like when my mom would go to some places, I would go with her. I, I remember, uh, not feeling like I had a, uh, you know, like I was lacking in things, uh, but also, um, you know, like there wasn't luxury of any kind, right? It was normal things. Um, uh, money wasn't so much a, a goal or a lack of goal. Like it was never presented to me as, hey, this is, you need to have a lot of money or like money is bad or good. It was just something that served to do your life. I think, um, and in, and in fact, when I think about money, even though it is better to have money than to not have money, sure, that wasn't really the motivation for me when I think about it. I think I've always wanted to have enough money that I didn't have to worry about it. But for example, I tried to do this exercise a while ago of if I had to spend a billion dollars, where would I actually spend it? Right? And it's on a personal level, it's incredibly hard for me to think about how I would spend it. But if I think about Unbabble and the things I want to build, it's incredibly easy for me to think, oh, if I had a billion dollars, here's what I would do, I would build all of this. What I do remember is, so uh, the first job I had that I got money was actually at 14 uh, summer, I worked in a meat uh, factory, not not actually with the meat, I was a like a courier delivering mail inside the factory. Uh, but I literally got to see how the sausage were made, so which that was interesting. Um, and then after that, I think, uh, so I, during my high school, I worked in, um, I, I used to manage a little cafe of a hotel here in Lisbon, the employee cafe of the Meridian Hotel in Lisbon on the weekends, uh, which was great because, you know, at lunch you could eat with the employees, which got all the desserts that were coming back from the hotel restaurant, which was awesome. Um, and then summers I would always uh, try to work. Um, and then uh, in college was the first time that I sold software for some money. So I remember someone saying, hey, I need this built. And I did it in Pascal at the time. It was a little software for, to manage uh, an accounting of, of some sort. Um, what I really loved, so I was very, very, very focused on coding, right? On building things like that. I remember, like, I started coding when I was six. I remember, um, so I had a, my first computer was a Spectrum 48K. And the in, in the newspaper, they would publish on the weekends games, like uh, the lines of codes of games right, for Spectrum. And I would spend the weekend coding that and then recording to tapes. And then you have like the debugging was play the tape back and see if the game actually shows up. And if it didn't go through the 2000 lines and try to figure out what you did wrong. Sometimes there's typos in the newspaper, you know. But so I remember doing that from early on and always being very uh, excited about programming, about computers in general. And so I knew very early on that I wanted to do something with computers. Uh, I knew that I liked it. I liked like, uh, like building things like Lego or, you know, I would spend hours and hours. So there's, there used to be this stubs, the ticket stubs for the bus in Lisbon. I would collect those. And so, and then I would make constructions out of them. Like just actual building things with my hands always gave me a lot of pleasure. So I knew that 
and I and if I look back, I think the first time I ever thought I was going to have a company, um, I remember a conversation at fifteen uh, where of, of thinking that and saying that, yeah, like I knew that I wanted to do some postgraduate degree in the U.S., some masters, and I knew that at some point I wanted to have a company of some sort. But it was mostly the driver of building things, right? It was a combination of building things and this idea that I wouldn't be accountable to anyone, that I wouldn't be subjected to anyone's authority, right? That I could do what I wanted, uh, which obviously is very naive, <laughs> you know, uh, that is never the case. But, uh, but that thought, that seed was in my mind. And then the real first time that I seriously thought about doing a startup was actually I was interning at Google. And I remember the feeling of, you know, Google, this was 2007, and it was a bit la-la land for developers. You know, it was like, here's infinite resources in a playground of huge size and go have fun and do interesting things, right? And I remember spending that those four months there and at the end feeling like, wow, like this is amazing, but the probability of me having impact in this organization is very little. I'm going to be this little cog in this giant machine and I, I want to do something where I have more impact. And uh, and that was the first time that I thought, oh, well, like I, I need to go and do something for myself. Um, Let's go. Um, I, Richard is uh, big into the startup community um, here in Krakow. He's invested in tons of startups. I'm 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 just a traditional. What well, you know this about me? I'm traditional sort of business guy. I, I so I actually don't know the way it all works. So um, and I'm not sure if you're allowed or if, if you're not allowed to tell us and don't tell us. But like, could you walk us through how funding? Like, so you talked about a. Was there a round before? Were there any rounds before a? And yeah. how much and how did it, can you just walk us through how you did it with Unbabel from the funding perspective? Because for me, this is what's interesting. Like, sorry, this is what's very different about doing things with VC and, and getting investors and stuff like that is there's this whole managing the, um, <laughs> managing your investors part of the business that I don't actually have no experience with. So I'm really interested in this. So if you could just talk us through that, if you can, whatever you can even all yeah. the way till today. I think that's really interesting, actually. Sure. So um, so we started Babel uh, in August of 2013. Uh, when we started, we said, look, we have one month to build a prototype and to show that this concept works. Uh, and so we like work like crazy. And we have this little prototype that shows that you can send text and you know get a machine translation and people editing and text comes out on the other side, right? And we we, uh, a friend of ours here in the university says, hey, you should just talk to a couple of investors, you know, just to get some feedback. And we go into what was supposed to be um, a, a, just a little cafe, a little having a little coffee. And it turns into a big meeting room with ton, like three associates and people expecting presentation and what's the business plan and where's the, you know, how the monetization. And we're like, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. So lesson one is there is no such thing as just coffee with investors, like <laughs> never, right? Always and be I got prepared. Out of there. <laughs> yes, I got out of there, like, this is never going to happen again, ever. Like this is, you know, like, of course they're like, uh, we don't even know how we're going to make money. This is ridiculous. We're not going to invest. And, and so we get out of there. I'm like, it's not going to happen again. I read this book called uh, Pitch Anything by Aaron Clapp, changed really my mindset on, 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 on pitching. I think in general, uh, the, the mindset uh, that he presented was very compelling and I can go into that later, but, you know, but then what happens September, September 19, we have first meetings with investors and it, it we start getting interest, right? And as that happens on October, we apply to Y Combinator. In November, we literally, the day that I'm about to sign the term sheets, uh, at the time I thought, well, it's going to be great. We never have to fundraise again. 
this was 200K of fundraising at the time. <laughs> and that literally that morning, I get an email from YT saying, actually, we'd love to see you guys here in the interview. And I'm like, okay, guys, to the investors here in Lisbon, look, we can't sign anything. We need to play this out. And we made a deal with them. We said, look, if you guys stick with us, if we don't make it, because still 30% chance getting in, then we also stick with you even if we get in. So if we get in, you, you can still invest. If you don't get in, you still invest. And so that was the verbal uh, agreement. So we go to YC, uh, we, we make it in, we end up raising uh, kind of the YC initial round. And in our case, ended up a little, little bigger because the, the Lisbon investors invested at the time, Faber and Schilling, which had always been uh, amazing partners. And, uh, and so we go to YC and at the end of YC, Typically, there's the demo day round, and, and Richard, that that is very much what you were thinking, like the cushy, like like YC does this amazing job at demo day of turning the tables, where suddenly there's this frenzy of investors wanting to invest, and we raised a million and a half in a week, and it was like it was crazy, like one hour calls and boom, that was it, right? Um, it, and YC used to say this is going to be the easiest money you're ever going to raise, and they were very right. You just at the time you think no, no, no. First of all. This is the last money we're ever going to need to raise. And second of all, if we ever need to raise, it's going to be even easier, right? And it really is. Sorry, but is that so, is that what you would call? I, remember, I'm the guy that doesn't know anything. That's so that's pre seed. That's, that's pre seed. So demo okay, day. That's... The, so demo day is kind of seed. Uh, okay. Re, the, uh, when we got into to YC, I would say that's like a pre seed round. Um, and then uh, a year later, uh, we we you know we're running out of money. We're like, okay, I think it's time. We need to. We weren't ready for a DA. And we had too many people and we started raising an extension, a seed extension, and with the numbers aren't there. And at some point, um, you know, we go through this whole uh, uh, circus and I'm, you know, we have this meeting and we said, look, we had, I think at the time, maybe 20 people. And we're like, okay, um, we need to let go 50% of our, no, actually I had 14 people and we either had to hire six more to get some product done, or we needed to let go of half the people to conserve cash. And we decided, to do that, right? And so we let go of seven people, which were all good friends, and it was it was hard. And then literally the next day, you know, I have a call from an investor that had talked to Andreessen Horowitz, and they and they said like we should invest. And they basically in the next day we closed the round. It was like it it, it was that. So what was that right? now? That was like after that was this... another million. So that okay. was another million. And, and yeah. that's what's called like seed two. That was that... a seed extension. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then after that, we did RA. So 2016. Sorry, I don't know again if this is stuff you can share, but I'm just fascinated by it. So you can just tell me no, I can't tell you. Is, is there, how did the, what were the valuations? Like, how, which value, like, how did the valuations work? Is this, is valuation secret information? But I also tell me so I don't ask A little anything. bit. Okay, little okay, bit. okay. So I won't, okay, I won't. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So we won't talk about that. So, uh, so it's a million, okay, so you got another million. So you got at this point. But, but think about it, think about it in general at that, at that time, probably. Uh, having a 10x to 20x uh, on revenue would be normal. Uh, and okay. I can tell you that the valuation we got on our after YC was, uh, wasn't, wasn't a real valuation because we raised using a safe. So it's a cap on a potential valuation of a series A, but uh, it was 8 million uh, out of YC. And so, so YC was great for a lot of reasons, but also it literally just getting to YC tripled our valuation like overnight. Oh, okay. Right. And it was because you know, you're a hotter commodity, right? You have access to better investors, potential customers, all of that stuff. So then the YC network does, and having done a startup in the US in Pittsburgh and going to Silicon Valley to try and raise money, 
that is a huge difference. So it does really feel when you go through YC, it's like going in through the front door and, you know, it's like, okay, you went to Harvard, you know, it's like, oh, people will take the meeting and will talk to you, will listen, will, and versus not where you are seen a bit as an outsider. And it used to be much harder. I think now with the pandemic, also things have been changing a lot, but, uh, you know, in 2007 and 2013, that was definitely the case. Um, okay, so that then, was seed extension. Yeah. We got to yeah. seed extension. And this is before and then we did the, our, this, the A that you were talking and about. And then we did our A, right, which was we raised five. And then we did our B, which we raised 20. And then we re, we did our C, where we raised 60. Actually, That's I think the, the B was a bit more. The B was like 23. Total, so far, we raised 91, so overall. And just for, for people who aren't familiar with this territory, when, when Vasco says he raised 60, that probably means that you might have an enterprise value of, of 200 million, 300 million, 400. Yeah, in that range. Because uh, that 60 doesn't get the whole company, that gets a share of the company and no, and no sensible investor wants to dilute the, the founding team too much that if you occasionally come across people who got this wrong and you, you end up with the, the founder leader who owns just a couple of percentage points of the company because they, they, they raise a too low a valuation, too much money at too low a valuation too early because the rule of thumb is raise as little as possible as late as possible. I think or, yes. I know, maybe you can comment on that. No, no, but but that's that's definitely learning that I I think. So I think we weren't capital efficient at Ambabble, and there's there's a lot of debate I, I think internally and externally on well, can AI companies at this point be really capital efficient because they end up resembling less like SaaS companies and more like deep tech. So there's a lot of investment up front to build to do a lot of the building and researching, et cetera. But in our case, I think was it took us a while to figure out the product market fit in our first use case. And I think if we had, if that had happened earlier, um, like for example, the money we took when we got into YC, um, we didn't need it. Like in hindsight, we didn't need it. It was, it was uh, us thinking, edging our bets, but you know, like it's, it, it diluted us uh, unnecessarily. Um, the, the, I think we should have made the, the, the seed round last longer. You know, like I think we, we were too eager and to scale things and to invest more before we actually started uh, figuring out more of the product market fit part. Um, and I think, uh, and, and then that has consequences, right? Because if you're, if you're not in a great shape to raise your, your A, then your A is going to be more diluted than it needs to be. So there's kind of a, fortunately, I think in our case, every investor that we've had in leading rounds in general has been really great. And so, there's no funky terms in our term sheets and weird things that you know have uh, future uh, impact on future rounds. It's very clean and it's very straightforward. But um, I do think that uh, you know uh, we've if I was if I would have gone back and redo it, knowing what I know now, I would have raised less money than I've raised so far. I have a question, which you, again, you might not be able to answer or, or you're not gonna be able to answer honestly, but like what, what, um, how valuable are these? Like, so, okay. These investors are giving you money and obviously the money is the rocket fuel for your business. So that's obviously extremely important, but are you getting also pitched that you're going to get extra? Like I have these experience, I have this network, I have this. And like, how valuable is that? Like, maybe you can speak a little bit to that. Is that, is that, is that part of their pitch for you accepting them as investors? And then in your experience, 
are the investors providing value? And I said, you're probably not going to, because they might listen. Can you, I don't know that you can actually answer. No, I, no, the question, I, I can. Honestly. I can. I, I think, I think uh, especially there's a lot of capital, uh, you know, right now. Uh, and when I say this, I, people, I used to hear this and I was like, oh, wow, there's money floating around for free. No, like, you know, there's just, there's just a lot of people investing, right? And there's a lot of funds. And so it, it, it's a bit of fun. Fundraising is always feast or famine, right? It's always either you're not getting or suddenly when you get everyone's interest. And, and, and once that happens, a lot of VCs try to differentiate themselves. And they, you know, the vast majority is always, they, they always overestimate the value that they're going to bring to the equation beyond the money, like always, right? With very, very few exceptions. Um, uh, it's always like, well, we have this great platform that we're going to help in A, B, C, and D. And, and some of them, quite honestly, if you ask them for help, they will, right? The question is, a lot of times you don't need that much of the help. Um, I mean, at this stage, um, a lot of times where do you need, really need help with investors, potentially in hiring, like if they know really good people at leadership roles and, you know, they can introduce you like... Uh, introduction to customers. I think that sales. That's I would have uh, expected sales. I would have expected right? yeah, uh, that. That's, but mm-hmm. but I think with investors in sales. So for example, so I remember uh, the the feeling of Andreessen Horowitz. That was really amazing. It was the only ones that. So they when they invested, especially at a later, later stage, they basically almost requested that someone like uh, the CRO or whatever whoever's leading sales would sit in their office because every day they were bringing. Uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 and Fortune 2000 companies to their office and have their investors pitch them, right? Like that's that's a real, like, like real, real benefit, right? Of like, right. we actually make stuff. Most investors, it's more like if you have, if you scour their LinkedIn's and you say, hey, I really, can you introduce to this person? They will definitely do it, right? If an investor can help, they will want to help. But there are very few investors actually have people doing very proactive work on trying proactive, to find new customers, yeah, yeah. you know? Um, and I think if you, uh, so one uh, um, scale venture partners, they let our be, right? They're probably the, the Andy, I, I love Andy. So the people on our board, one is, uh, uh, one is Chris uh, Topman from Notion, who was the founder of Message Labs. And so he has a lot of the founder background. He's done, you know, like he has that founder mentality. And then Andy uh, Vitas from uh, Scale, Let RB, is also on our board. And then Sri from 0.72, Let RC, right? And they're very different, but they're really good in a lot of different ways. So Andy's probably the most pragmatic in the sense of he, one of the things said about Scale is, hey, we don't have a platform. We don't, you know, like what we help is we help with money and then we just help with pattern matching, right? We've seen a lot of things and we can have give you some guidance, but you need to build a company, right? Like it's very like, I'm not going to build a company for you. You need to build a company, right? And right. and there's no uh, there's there's no bullshit in that sense. And I and I think that's that's really important. Um, for us, that really works, right? And I and so most investors always think they're going to provide more value. It, they usually don't. It's not that they don't want to. It's just it's hard, right? Because you're going a thousand miles an hour and just contextualizing an investor on the unless it's very self-contained and you say, look, I have this problem or this issue or this challenge, here it is, I love your guidance. Sometimes that really works because they have a certain expertise. You know, for example, um, in the case of um, uh, eventers um, and, and uh, Greycroft, so one of the partners at Greycroft used to be the uh, CMO at LinkedIn. She's really amazing. And when I was thinking about marketing and 
uh, go to market, you know, one of the big conversations I had with her was like, hey, one of the key people uh, was RevOps and why that was important and why having this RevOps person at this stage was super important and the impact it had, et cetera. And that made a difference. I went and hired a RevOps person and it's, it is having an impact, right? So things like that, where you have access to people that have done certain things that can really say, hey, look, this really worked for me. I think that makes a difference. But a lot of times if you end up with a guy just came out of Harvard, did his MBA, now it's going to spend the next six months yeah. giving you advice on how to you know, restructure your business model. It, it's not- That's not going to be a whole lot of yeah. value. Listen, the, uh, we t- we're, we're approaching an hour here and you, we've, we've gotten to the point where, you, where you, uh, you've actually, you have a, a company that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, clearly. We don't know exactly how much, but let's say hundreds of millions of dollars. We don't know what, I mean, the viewers, the people that are listening, they probably have no idea what you actually do. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what is Unbabel? What does Unbabel actually do? What problem does it solve? Um, maybe just a bit about that. I think that, that uh, now is high time if we don't get to it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and make it quite telegraphic in the sense that someone who doesn't know the industry should be able to understand you. <laughs> okay, so um, the fundamental problem comes from this, right? Which is people speak different languages. Right. This is this is very obvious, but actually, this is you know it sounds very obvious. It's like people speak different languages, and they always will. Right. There was not going to be a time where we all speak the same language, and the problem fundamentally is as a business grows and goes beyond their initial market and expands, they start having to deal with people that speak different languages. Right. And that happens across the entire company. How do I sell my product? How do I advertise it? How do I serve my customers? How do I you know get them to use the product? And, and, and so this happens as they scale across every function, right? And it's this issue of dealing with languages that ultimately we're trying to solve. Now, the big thing that changed over the last 10 years is that artificial intelligence started having an impact, right? So, you know, six years ago or seven years ago, right around when we started, it, it was that time where you, when you took the output of a, of a machine translation engine, like Google Translate, and you gave it to a human to fix it, the first thing they would do was not erase everything and start from scratch. Actually, it started being somewhat helpful, right? And that change of how AI is gonna affect the way we do translation and we do localization and we do all of the language services creates a lot of opportunities. And it creates the, the opportunity for localization to evolve into doing more than they were doing until now. So if you think about the whole market of localization and translation, is primarily focused on two of these problems, marketing and product, right? How do I translate my website and my documents and my, you know, my product? But you, companies have the same problem on how do I support my customers, right? So if we take that as an example, so that's uh, right now our core use case. Until we came here, until we started, the, the way to support customers in multiple languages is hire people that speak that language, right? So you have a team of people that speak German and a team that speak people that speak French and Spanish and so on. Now within Babel, because of this combination of AI and humans, you can do faster translations with, you know, with good quality uh, in a scalable way. Suddenly you can hire people that just speak English. And, uh, and in our case, we focus on text, so email and chat. And that customer service agent that only speaks English can communicate with anybody in any language. And this really has a couple of very interesting impacts on how you can do customer service in multiple languages. One is it reduces the cost. So if you take a German native speaker in Germany, it costs you, let's say, 3K a month. Uh, and if you have someone in the Philippines, even if you put Unbabel on top, it costs you half that cost, right? So there's a efficiency in cost. But actually, more importantly, 
you have an increase in CSAT, uh, so in customer satisfaction. So it's a better way of doing customer service because you have a faster time to first response, you're maximizing the use of the workforce, uh, and you can hire people that are really experts in the product rather than just experts in the language. And so this is creating a different way for companies to do multilingual customer support. So what do we do? So our vision is we wanna create uh, uh, what we what we think about is language operations, right? A category of language operations, which is how do we enable businesses to scale across uh, markets and deal with language issues, but in a very scalable, structured way. And so we're building a platform to enable language operations at scale. We started with customer service, and then we'll expand to other areas. So not basically, bad. right? Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Richard. Actually, I'm more into it. Maybe you should ask a question. No, I, I say not, not bad. So, so basically, someone could buy a... Uh, I don't know, a modem made by Cisco or whoever makes modems and they're in Vietnam and they send in a chat request in Vietnamese and, and a customer service agent who doesn't speak doesn't speak Vietnamese is able to look after them because the type of questions that person has can be quite easily modeled by machine learning and AI. That They're not going to ask what the weather's like in Manila, but they might ask, you know, what does that flashing green light mean? Is that correct? That is, you basically you can look after your customers without speaking their language. Some, yeah, that is correct. Uh, but even if they ask the weather, that would be fine because of this blended model of AI and humans, right? So we can deal with uh, things beyond just the templates uh, because of of that. Uh, one actual example, like Logitech, is one of our uh, customers. It's very interesting because of what happened during the pandemic, everybody was buying cameras, so they had to uh, uh, increase. They had to deal with a three hundred percent increase in customer. Um, service requests. And now, for especially for the tier of interactions that, that uh, Logitech wanted to use is they, they need to hire engineers to, like that's typically what they do. They hire engineers for their customer service teams for like tier two customer service. Uh, and hiring a bunch of engineers in a bunch of different languages and training them remotely, it, it would have been impossible. And so using Unbabel, they scaled to 300% uh, uh, increase in customer service requests. They reduced 48 hours to 12 hours turnaround time uh, without having to hire people that spoke different languages. And, and very importantly, and this is something that a lot of people don't get with automation, really you're increasing the productivity of human beings enormously. This isn't replacing people with machines, it's making people way more efficient. Is that correct? That's, that's exactly uh, correct. And it happens on both sides, right? So the humans that translate can translate not only more words, but also focus on the things that are better instead of dealing with the crappy part of translation, which there's quite a lot of it. But those are things that machines are actually quite good at dealing with. But then the agents also can handle more people and can handle people in more languages, right? Which means that ultimately customers have a better service. So for example, if I, am, if I want to talk to British Airways and I'm in London, I can do that 24 seven. But if I'm in Lisbon, it's nine to five, Monday to Friday, right? They don't have 24 seven support. Like having that ability to provide equal customer support independently of language is, you know, it's a bit uh, crossing that language gap, right? I mean, we live in a world where if you happen to be born in a country where you don't speak languages that are widely used, you effectively have less access to information, to services, to, to you know, to resolve uh, things, to interact with other parts of the world. And, you know, this enables you to overcome that. And how does your... Um... How does your platform differ, I mean, from, let's say, a traditional translation agency when you have, a, um, because you have translators, uh, who is actually doing the, 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 the linguistic work 
on the back end. Uh, I know, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about community. Um, you have a, you, you have a, you may, you have a, because I'm in the translation industry, I know you have a different yeah. model. And I think it is actually interesting to talk about how, what's your model when it comes to the, the people that are actually doing the work. So um, the, the fundamental pipeline of translation at Babel works roughly like this. So you have text coming in and then you have a machine translation engine that does a first translation. Now this machine, this engine is customized on a per customer basis, right? So it's constantly learning and improving on the vocabulary and the tone of a particular customer, uh, you know, formal, informal, language fair, et cetera. Um, and then the, the translation that comes out of there then is evaluated by something called quality estimation. So that is a module that does a real-time evaluation and decision on whether do we think that that's good enough or does it need a human, right? Uh, and so as the AI gets better, you know, the easier stuff doesn't need humans anymore. And so the hard things still get sent to a human. And then when it goes to a human, we have a community of translators. Uh, when we started out, uh, and that's something that's been evolving over time. So when we started out, the vision was, well, if we're gonna translate this much content, there just isn't enough professional translators to do it. I mean, there's like 500,000 professional translators in the world, roughly, right? So if you're gonna have millions of people involved, you need to have bilinguals involved. And so the idea is, can we also leverage AI to help a non-specialist translator to perform at the level of a professional translator, right? With uh, AI-powered CAT tools, for example. So the CAT tool that the translators use um, has embedded uh, a lot of things that try to make it easier for a non-professional to still produce high-quality work. Um, what we've seen, though, over time as we focus on and experiment with different types of content is that the bilingual community is really great for certain types of content. So, um, you know, uh, for example, what we do with emails and chat, this blend of speed and quality and, and cost, and it's just, it, you can't do it with traditional translation and you can't do it with just machine translation. So it, there's, a, there's a sweet spot here in emails, for example, they really need this, like this is a massive advantage. But as you expand that, uh, that you know, the way of thinking to other content types, the community also needs to evolve, right? And so I think what we're gonna see in Invaluable Communities is not just doing, okay, here's an email to translate, but it's people that maybe are experts in, in, I don't know, medical or legal or specific marketing things, or that actually what they do is, is supporting roles like annotations of, uh, that enable you to generate NQM in a scalable way to any document or uh, sentiment analysis or uh, anonymization or other services that are NLP related that enable you to then scale those, those operations. Um, and, and, and so right now they're decoupled. So the, uh, the community uh, is kind of seen as the human component, right? And so gets input of text and a certain task to do and does the task. But there's a lot of work on vetting and managing and, you know, curating and evaluating and this constant process. Still, okay, I mean, so I, I still feel very much that we're just the beginning, right? There's a lot. Yeah, I know. To, I know. That's what's uh, exciting. I mean, for particularly for the people that are listening to this from the industry and, you know, may not know that much about you guys or, or learning about you guys. So because like here you are, I mean, you're basically a very tech savvy uh, AI machine learning company in the translation space um, that's very well funded. And so where are you going to, so where are you going to take this? Like this, that's, what's the really interesting. So you've started, basically you've, you've proven it out. You've gotten investors to buy into um, the fact that you're, you're doing what we in the translation industry would consider relatively the easier sort of types of contents, which would be, let's say chat and, um, and email. Uh, but clearly you're set up to be able to uh, take this into, let's say the more traditional 
spaces. So can you talk about the future? Like where are you, where are you taking on Babel? Like what's, where are you going to take it? So, um, and um, uh, what we found, uh, Kimon, is that the challenge sometimes are different. So I think for the traditional translation to translate an email is easier, right? But to do it at the speed and scale and cost that we do it with the quality that yes. we do it, that's, yes. that's really the hard yes. part, right? Linguist, so sorry, do, I should have been clear. The linguistic problem, the linguistic, yes. only the linguistic yeah. challenge is, but for what you do, it's highly uh, challenging yeah, <laughs> to I mean, be able do, to turn over all that very fast. We do now fast. a couple of billion words a year, right? Exactly. On email and chat, right? And so it's uh, uh, that, that uh, and our average turnaround time is what, five minutes, 10 minutes, right? And so exactly. it's that that combination that creates that scalability. You know, I, I think of a babble, of there, there's an Babel master plan, right? Uh, that I've actually very recently put it to paper. It was always in my mind, but now it's in paper. Uh, and I see it myself as, you know, if, if you think of this as the metaphor, a lot of times we use it in, in startup world, right? The metaphor of conquering a territory, right? I think the, the, the phase that we were before, so in, in this plan, we're in phase three now. Phase two was conquering the beachhead, right? Phase one was really, hey, build the core stuff, just show that it works. Uh, you know, like get get the pieces ready, and then phase two was okay. This we've experimented with a bunch of stuff. The seed stage. Now we think customer service is the 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 goal. Let's go and build uh, capture the beachhead, right? And that beachhead was customer service. In 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 the phase that we're now is okay. If you if you capture the beachhead, you now need to build a moat and you need to build a fort that you can then raid other stuff from, right? And so this is the phase that we're in. It was like okay grow that mode of customer service really like no one's going to listen to you yeah. and, until you're big enough that you know and, and the way to do that is to really own a space uh if you scatter and if you diffuse yourself too much then it becomes really hard to have a, a voice a real voice and so that for us was customer service and continues to be but then what's happening now is with language operations it's really building the sport that we can start doing more that we can start exploring and seeing you know how do we raid other parts of the territory um, but I think that's, that's the key part, right, is um, in my mind is, okay, if we were to rethink, and it goes back to your question of why is this different? Like, this is a question a lot in my mind. Why is this different than a TMS, right? Like there's, there's 100 TMSs out there. Why is this different? And I think the big difference is if you were to reimagine a TMS from an AI first perspective, how would that look like, right? Like, and, and I think that's, that's really the, where we can make a difference from a, it really influencing the lives of what used to be localization managers. And I think you're going to evolve into LangOps. It's, for example, so a localization manager typically has expertise in linguistics, project management, a lot of times customer facing uh, role in managing customers. Typically what you don't see is experience in AI, right? But that's the thing that's going to have a lot of impact. So what if you uh, were to rethink AI first, for example, so uh, in the Embabble portal, uh, the idea is that you as a non-expert in AI should be able to take everything from zero to deploying models to understanding the impact that AI is having in your in your customer uh, and blend it in with the human process that you have and be able to manage all of that in a scalable way, right? And so I think uh, I think that the, 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 the real difference is the AI first perspective, but then that has a lot of snowball effect into everything. Like take glossaries, right? Right now, the way we create glossaries, there's a couple of tools but they're all very primitive and usually requires a lot of manual curation. But there should be an AI that constantly is trying to curate that and help you and suggest and make your life easier, right? And make all of that like grunt work 
better and easier. The same thing with translation memories, the same thing with anonymization, the same thing with, you know, a lot of like the tasks that localization people tend to do. And when you do that, then you can scale it, right? And you can, um, right now it's the, the localization industry works in a task oriented thing, project based and very like you do this and this person does that. Uh, but what happens if you think from an account perspective, right? How can you have a maestro that really owns and, and in, improves the translation layer of the company where you have a central AI that is constantly learning and improving, you know, and, and enabling then an additional set of human work to happen so that you can scale across the company. And, and just, just, I, I, we just, want just, to take, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I, I get too excited about this. I know, it is, it is exciting. I just want to do a quick jargon bastard that NLP is not neuro-linguistic processing, but natural language processing. And TMS yes. means translation management system. Correct. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Correct. And and in terms of the numbers, for people who don't know the industry, if if we take five euro, five euro cents or American cents per word as a a bargain basement price for for human translation, two billion uh, two billion words would be like a hundred million dollars worth of translation. And am I right in thinking that uh, you're driving so much cost out of this that effectively you're opening up the possibility of quality translation in areas where previously people just wouldn't have even considered it remotely affordable that you're yes so, so your so, your mat is as people who are in the translation industry might panic and think oh my god unbabble's going to knock out the rest of the industry because we can't compete with this on the other hand the, the market's going to explode presumably or the use i, I think that explode. yes i think that the percentage of content that is translated nowadays is a small percentage of what should be translated and it's really the content that is the most painful I, you know i used to use a metaphor for unbabble which was uh, the, the, what happened, you know, in humanity with water. So it, it used to be, and it's still the case in some place in the world where you get water, you get a bucket, go to the well, bring back water, right? It's like every time you wanted it, you go to the bucket and spend hours a day doing this. And then you had, you know, infrastructure built, right? You had pipes and you had, you know, uh, water that was available in the faucet. And when you had a faucet, it fundamentally changed people's lives, health, you know, the amount of free time, your ability to do other tasks, um, and translation is a bit that's bucket stage, you know, like I need to have this translated. I go and, you know, do a procurement and set up a project and allocate it to someone. And, you know, I go to the bucket and I send it to the well. And, and this creates a lot of friction. But what if there were faucets everywhere, right? What if translation was just a layer in between that would just enable things to, to happen and communication to happen seamlessly? Yeah, I, I would actually say one thing, to, again, for, uh, I mean, it's because I know you. But uh, you, you know, you started the the business, and you, as I, from what I recall in previous conversations, you never had anybody from a translation company working in your business. And I think that that's one of the key key secrets to building something. No, I'm completely serious now. You, you're talking about AI enabled and all that stuff, but the truth is, you've also built it from a different perspective, actually. And I think that's massively important. I think that's massively important. And that's because we are, you hit the nail on the head on so many ways. And we are a, way, a very task-oriented um, industry. And we're, we are fetching buckets back and forth. Um, and that's not, that's not optimal. So I do think that, you know, I think that the, the, the way you built the platform actually is, is really important here. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think it's a double-edged sword, right? So for example, I think that it, it, sometimes it enabled us to think things differently, but sometimes we reinvented the wheel, you know? So for example, if I, given that 
at, at the beginning, we didn't know if we we're going to go big enterprise, which is more and more what's happening uh, in customer service. Like the impact that our customers tend to our SCP, so ideal customer profile tends to be B two C large companies that you know have large customer service uh, organizations. Um, if I knew that that was the case from the beginning, um, I probably would have actually spent uh, maybe three months just sitting with the translation agency and see how they work. <laughs> that would have well, saved we can't me do so it. much we time. Can't. We, I mean, we, so, you know, uh, I, I own a translation agency and we can't do, like, we can't compete with you on customer service. I mean, like, we just can't, we couldn't possibly do it. I mean, it's just something we just can't, we can't do that we're not set up for that. We're set up for something else. What's interesting in your case though, and, and we're clearly not able to transition into that. What's interesting in your case is you've built the machine and the platform that I believe in talks with you as well, that you are gonna be able to transition this into sort of like other, other, other spaces as well. I think that's exciting personally. Yeah, I, I think, um, I believe so too, but I, I sometimes I think that people expect that to happen overnight um, you know, like, and, no. and I, I think language is tricky, right? I mean, like, yes. you know, if, if you think about it, language and uh, translation was the original AI use case, right? I mean, 1960, uh, out of the second world war and the whole, um, cipher and, uh, uh, effort in, you know, in the, with, with second world war, the idea was a, you know, with Alan Turing was hey, actually we could look at languages as codes, right? Like, someone took our language and applied a code and became French, right? And so we could use the same thing. And so that was a bit the birth of AI and thinking like five to 10 years, we'll have machine translation fixed, yeah. you know, and like it's gonna be solved. <laughs> and this was 1960, right? And we're like yeah, 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 really yeah. far from it, right? So um, it's, it, it's a mistake we do often, I think as humans is because language is so core to us and it's so seamless and easy, we assume that it should be easy. And there's actually, it, it is very much a, a very, a, a very nuanced expression of intelligence, right? And so I think it's amazing the amount of stuff that we can do now with with deep learning, and it's definitely improving. And I, we're seeing a lot of really great things coming out. But then you look at things like dialogue systems, you know, like Siri's and Cortana's and and Google Assistants and Alexas, and they're very very basic in their interaction, right? I mean, like this expectation a couple of years ago where everything was going to be a conversational interface and uh, bots were going to take over. And then you see how they don't work really because we're still in a, a decision tree world, right? Where it's like, so, okay, Vasco, if, if, you're yeah. you're you're going here anyway. Put on your futurist hat. How long? When do we have C3PO walking around? C3PO walking around. Um, well, C3PO didn't actually speak English, so maybe that's... Speak, that's C3PO easier. spoke everything. Oh, he sorry, R2D2. Sorry, yeah, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, that's our R2D2. C3PO sorry, yeah, could actually sorry. translate it from every language to every language. Again, Jargon Buster here, this is a reference to a Star Wars film that was popular in... Popular yes, and in, there was a robot, and the robot was a translator. His job yes. was translator, and he could translate everything to everything. Everything. He's also very smart, right? And I think that's... So I think... We will have Babelfish before we'll have C3PO, you know, because there's the intelligence part where Babelfish, you could, you could potentially see, okay, uh, you know, things, if you evolve enough in speech recognition uh, that you can do speaker independent speech recognition with noise, uh, with high accuracy and with enough data, you could have, you know, a speech to speech translation system that would be functioning, I would think in the next 10 years in 
things that are day-to-day activities plus uh, basic bu- uh, business interactions. But like so, tourists, like for tourists and business people sure. that want to do basic things. Yeah. Uh, but even even like like uh, not complicated business meetings, I would I would think in ten years, yes. I think a C3PO, there's just fundamental things we don't know yet, right? I think that's the, it's hard to predict breakthroughs in science when they're required. And I think the main thing is intelligence, right? We don't know really what intelligence is yet. Like we don't know how it works in us and how cognition happens and, and it's tied to conscious. And like, for example, I have, I have this theory where I, I think of language as a scaffold, scaffolding of thought, right? So I think that our brains are this massive parallel machines, right? At every given moment, you are, you're processing a bunch of stuff, right? There's, there's visual input coming in and there's sound and there's a taste and, uh, you know, your body's working and your brain is processing that part and there's feelings and all this stuff is happening in parallel and you don't even know it, right? You're not consciously controlling your heart or your lungs or, and then at some point, this massive parallel thing gets serialized into a stream of consciousness that is the you that you perceive as you. And, and I think that language is a scaffold that that we use to express those thoughts, right? It's not necessarily the the the, the thing that controls them, but is the is the structure that enables you to express it. And which is why, if you think in different languages, you have different abilities to express yourself because it's different kind of structure. And and if, you know, so but, but we don't know, right? Like this is a theory, but we don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know in, when it comes to intelligence. And until we figure that out, like one example is the dialogue systems and you know until we figure out real really how to reason and i think that's going to be the next stage so deep learning from a statistical perspective huge in- improvement now there's a big debate in academia on can we actually uh, replicate logic just with advanced deep learning or do we need to now kind of have the pendulum swing and have start researching symbolic ai again and how to mesh symbolic ai with uh, with uh, statistical AI, which is the case of deep learning, because uh, you know you have a lot of amazing pattern recognition from deep learning, but it's still pattern recognition, right? It's not the application of of reason. Uh, and and humans, and reason has a lot of benefits, right? In terms of um, uh, of efficiency of of how to achieve goals and and shortcuts, and and so until we figure out how we do that, you can't have a three CPO, right? I, I actually think a very exciting um, path that I'm seeing is actually brain-to-computer interfaces. I'm, I'm a very big believer in that. I think that so, like the um, Elon Musk um, superhighway yeah. connected. What's it called? I forgot what it's called. Int- the Neuralink. Neuralink. Yeah, Neuralink. Yeah. So, uh, um, um, uh, Facebook is working on neurophotonics, a different approach. Uh, there's a few people working on different uh, sides of things. I think the latest demonstration of Neuralink was quite impressive. Um, I, I believe that as humans we are really geared to adopt any tool that gives us an advantage of our environment. And I think that before we'll get to a fully conscious AI, we will, we will, it's more likely that we'll have humans merging with AI so that AI and hybrid model of AI and humans. Yeah, superpowered, uh, whatever, superpowered yeah. humans. Yeah, because I remember yeah. uh, Elon, he, he always says that the, the limitation is the bandwidth, right? Because we just have this. Yes. If the type on this machine and whereas if the, we just... the cell phone, right? It's like, <laughs> right, the and cell you can type is... very slowly, but you're thinking yeah. the equivalent of four, you know, four 4K movies per second of bandwidth, right? And so right. if you have that, and if you think about it, that already happens in our brain, right? You have 
the, the limbic system and the neocortex are essentially two separate systems that evolved in different times, but they're so well connected that you don't perceive them as different systems, right? So I think we're going to have a third part of our brain that is going to exist in the cloud outside of our brain. It's going to give us a real extension of our cognitive capabilities. And I think that that is super exciting because it's going to really change so yeah, how, so how, how how and, and I know we're running out of time. I'm sure I'm Richard. I'm sure is ready to do the wrap up thing. But so when are you, how early will you be a, an, a first adopter of sticking something into your brain? <laughs> will you, what will be the, what will be the, what will be the litmus so test for you? So that, that's a good question, right? So I think removing a dime size of my skull to put something, I, I will need a few years to know that the tumors don't come out of that before I put one. <laughs> you know, I'm more likely to, if there's like little filaments that are less invasive, if there's something on the outside, or initially Elon's uh, vision was, can we do um, little nanobots that you inject into your uh, okay. brain, right? That attach to the neuron. Like, I, I think it needs to be less invasive, right? I, I think uh, removing parts of your body to but replace you're, that. You're is still okay with uh, injecting nanobots that are going to be basically a Bluetoothing to whatever device. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends. I mean, how many people nowadays, uh, you know, use, um, oh man, uh, what do you call yeah, wireless the, headsets or wireless? No, no, not the, well, definitely the wireless headsets, but I've been talking about, um, oh, the surgery that you do for, uh, oh, LASIK. No, LASIK. no, for ear Yo, repair, the, Yeah. The, um, Ah, I don't know about the hearing one. It's, it's, you know, it replaces your eardrum and then you have the little device on the outside and, right. you know, your oh, brain. Hearing aids, just hearing aids. Yes, it's, but there's it's a specific. a new technology, isn't okay. there? It's replacing some bit of your body. So yes. It's, it's, it's basically it's, an artificial it's, ear, basically. Yeah, and there's millions of people already using it, right? And, like, mm. and I think it's the question of when will you do it is a bit like the question of when will you use autonomous vehicle, right? And the answer is, Depends how drunk you are. <laughs> yes. So be careful, be careful, podcast listeners. So going out for a drink with Vasco, you just might come back, come back with a new implant. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, you know, we often ask people about the role of the role of luck and about leadership, and there's been such an interesting diversion. I don't want to sort of. I, I, I think that. In terms of leadership, one of the characteristics of leadership is you have to have the faith and respect of your team. And I'm sure for people who work in Unbabble, hearing you talking so knowledgeably and expertly about the field you're in is part of the process. Are there any other aspects of being a leader that you found particularly challenging or you feel you could maybe atypical views of things that you feel are important that you don't hear being said by other people? So one, uh, it's not so much not being said by other people, it's just things that made a difference for me. I, I think being a student. So um, I, I, I feel that I, uh, I'm very much learning. And so I think it's important to surround myself with people that can teach me. So people that are better than I am at what they do. And I think it's, it was very important to get a coach post-Series A once you are actually building an executive team and start that journey of founder to CEO. I think it, it is a journey. Uh, the learning to let go, like once you, once you start managing people that are ma in themselves very experienced managers, like it, it's a different, uh, it's different from understanding all the little uh, nooks and crannies of the product and the tech and coding to then, you know, working on your business versus in your business, you know, that kind of change in mentality. And how do you go from 
being micromanager to really managing high achievers in that are really experts in their area. I think there's a lot to learn there of letting go of trust of of uh, how do you be comfortable being vulnerable with your own shortcomings? How do you recognize your limitations so that you're trying to complement this, you know, yourself with other people that that are that can help you? Um, and doing this a continuous process, um, I think has helped me. Uh, but each person is a person. Um, I, I'm still figuring out. Like I'm very big believer in, in experimentation, uh, and so. There's a lot of things that I'm about that are experiments, even on culture and does this work better and how do we iterate? Um, and like, for example, now with COVID, like every company, we had to go remote. Um, but then what happens afterwards, right? And we're now trying a hub mentality of uh, it's a hybrid model. And we're going to have like, we now have hubs in London and Lisbon, and Berlin and New York, San Francisco and, and Pittsburgh. And we're trying to uh, still cater like get around those rather than being fully remote like it's how do you experiment with that right and how do you experiment with a, a team that is uh the leadership team is divided into continents i think there's a lot of things there that you need to kind of start by working on yourself um and and not feel like you need to be right all the time you know like i think that's sometimes you when you're starting out you're like you need to prove yourself and like i need to be right all the time but you don't you just you need to have people that you know can help you with that yeah plenty of lessons to Plenty of lessons, and we could have spent a whole podcast just talking about the issues you've raised. But um, for anyone interested in having their own organisation, whether for business or for profit or non-profit, listen and pay attention to what Vasco just said. There's a lot of wisdom there. I think I'll flip this back to to Kimon now for any closing closing questions and comments. Um, I mean, yeah, Vasco. I mean, your story is fascinating to me, and and I, I mean, I know it a little bit, probably. From the inside, because of uh, you're, we're in the same industry in the translation industry, and I just, I just think where you're, where, where you've come from, and where you're potentially going is particularly exciting. You didn't say just, I give you, I have to give you a second to, to give yourself a little one more promo, this, a slice of promo here, because you didn't use the word translation layer, and I love that. I love that. Con that was one of the concepts I always loved in talking to you about just like two sentences about why is unbabble? What do you mean when you, because we, we, we've been talking about the process of translation, but in fact, a big piece of translation is how do you, how do companies interact and get the service and, and how does it work? Do you want to just like two seconds on, on, on that? Yeah. So the mission of unbabble uh, is, is really on building the world's translation layer. Right. And what does that mean is, we imagine a world where there is a layer that is connected to all the places where people communicate, create, and consume content, and that makes that communication possible in every language. And so the way that Embalva works right now is we connect directly to, since we started with customer service, we connect to the CRMs, to Zendesk and Salesforce and Dynamics and Oracle and all of those, so that the agents don't have to do anything different, right? They operate and work as they normally do. And we kind of work behind the scenes to make sure that that communication happens. So you are in the client's environment. That's the point. You're in, yes. the, you're in the client's environment. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, let me, uh, I have to move on to thank yous. First of all, thanks to everybody to taking the time to listen to this. You've gotten through, I'm not sure what we're at. We're probably about getting close to an hour and a half, um, but very interesting, uh, very interesting talk today. Uh, we have to thank Magda Fantakitis, my daughter, Vasco, if you ever need 
premium graphic design, video editing, or anything like that, shout out to my now daughter. Now we get to the real point of the <laughs> This is the whole part. This is the only reason that I do this podcast is to generate work for my daughter, Magda Pantakidis. Uh, there's a second Magda, Magda Wiskosh, that uh, interns for us. Um, she does all the PR and promotion. She's fantastic. She's a high school student, an up and coming person for sure as an entrepreneur, I suspect. Um, everybody at NDN, MBN for, uh, who processes this and puts it up on the web for us. Um, so if you want to subscribe, you can do that at MBN, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and obviously like and uh, share and whatever. So th Vasco, thank you so much for taking the time. You were a very interesting person to talk to. I know you personally, but uh, this was really fun. I learned stuff about you uh, here today. So uh, thanks a lot for that. Thank you. Thank you guys. It was a pleasure and uh, really happy to be here. This was really was a lot of fun. And thank you, Richard. Thank you very much indeed.